0: Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Apollo Ono, is America's most decorated winter Olympian earning eight Olympic medals in short track speed skating across 2002, 2006, and 2010 Winter Olympics. He's also an Olympic sports analyst for NBC, a global ambassador for the Special Olympics and and Winter Olympics, and a best-selling author. His newest book is Hard Pivot, which he describes as an open letter to those struggling with uncertainty and hardship and who need to reinvent themselves to thrive in what is an increasingly chaotic world. Apollo Ono, welcome to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, We're here to talk about your book, but we're in the middle of the Beijing Winter Olympics. I can't not ask you a couple of questions about that.
2: Please. (laughs) I've been watching and cheering and screaming the entire time.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, that's good. So, uh, first of all, I'm just going. I have three issues I want to raise with you, and then we'll go. We'll go to the book. One is you know, this whole controversy over the Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva, who tested positive for some banned substance. You know, it, it, it seems to me, and I want your take on this. uh They're letting her compete, and I'm wondering what you think about taking someone and. You were probably in the same category. Someone so young, putting them in a situation so fraught with political, economic, and emotional turmoil, which has nothing to do with her and everything to do with the adults who run the Olympics and the countries that are involved, is—is is it right to put someone that young in that position? Well, it's a very sensitive and delicate topic. I think, you know, I—I I don't know all of the
2: specific details regarding Camilla, you know, Valieva. Russia has suffered from longstanding use, uh, both by force, by mandatory consumption. And these athletes that I think grow up in that era, they love the sports like anyone else does. And the normalization that has occurred of using performance-enhancing drugs in certain parts of the world, Russia being one of those places, is uh, somewhat unacceptable. Right. And in this this dates back, by the way, back to like the 60s and 70s. So this is not a new phenomenon. Back in the East German uh, days when doping was very rampant, there was even times where you'd see athletes try to time their pregnancy because of the hormonal responses and releases that the female athletes would get in and around the Olympic Games timeframe. So there's always been kind of this fascination with going above and beyond the issue that i have is you know the olympic games is supposed to be this level playing ground and place where those things are just they're just non conversation
1: starters as they should be yeah yeah I, I i agree but okay let's put all that aside and let's talk about your book which is really why we're here again the book is called hard pivot and You have this interesting way of opening the book. I'm just going to read the sentence back to you. And you write, I was just 27 years old when I walked away from my dream, from the only life I had known for the previous 14 years. My sense is, and correct me if I'm wrong, certainly, but my sense is that you didn't walk away from who you are as a human being, but you may have walked away from whom the media had turned you into, you know, Apollo, Ono, oh Olympian, the fastest man on ice, Sports Illustrated cover model, Phenom champion. That's, that's how you put it. What gave you the strength, the courage to do that? Well, it, I still deeply
2: love the sport and the decision, I think I had quietly made that internally, even before I had competed in my final Olympic games in Vancouver in 2010. I sort of knew that at some point I needed to transition beyond this solo identity that existed in the realm of speed skating and the Olympic path. It was an identity that I was very comfortable with, that I had subscribed to, that was given to me, that was granted to me, so to speak. And just, I don't know, it was like there's a calling in a sense, it says like, you have to do something different. Like Apollo, you, you there's other facets of your personality you must explore. There's other arenas and areas of the planet and people that you must go experience and talk to and see. Because my view, although I had traveled to 60 plus countries, was actually quite narrow. And it was relegated to that of which the conversations would transpire in the locker room, on the ice rink in my own head, watching skating tapes. And so the circle of exposure was very, very, very tight and controlled and consistent. And I knew there was something else out there on the other side that would force me into an era of being uncomfortable, having uncertainty, and also allowing me to have this natural kind of infinite curiosity that existed. I just didn't know how to direction, um, to, to put that into some direction. So the decision was actually uh, quite hard to retire. And, And the reason was because I had the blueprint for success in my support. I had been celebrated. I knew that this was something that I would grab onto in terms of having my own purpose. I felt like this was the reason why I was on this planet. And it just felt like it was just one chapter. It was hard because I had already developed, you know, this 15 years of behavioral conditioning in terms of what I wanted, what I thought and how the world worked and the way that things would react to my effort level was was different than if I decided to hang my skates up. And so I I knew that I also was afraid of of this fact of like I knew at some point that I would have to find a different passion that maybe would replace the Olympic path. And I had no idea that maybe perhaps that there was no possible way to replace it. It just is what it is. And it is what it was. And it's a beautiful experience. But then I would have to go and polish the other facets of my curiosities. So that process to me was, was really challenging um, because of the unknown component on the other side, right? I went from knowing everything to feeling like I knew nothing. To feel like I, I had no other passions and I had no direction. I had no guardrails to keep me aligned in this four-year, you know, journey towards the Olympic Games, or at, at least at the end of the year, there's the World Championships, or at least in September, there's World Cup number three and four, or at least in December, there is that the US, you know, national team trials. Like I have all these targets that are very clearly laid out with dates and specificity. But what I didn't have when all those things went flat was setting my own targets. And while I was no stranger to setting goals and micro and mesocycle goals, I I felt like I was alien almost. I felt like others didn't understand my background, what 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 I went through. And so it felt like a very foreign environment. And I also felt old, which is strange, right? You say at the 27, 28 years old, how do you feel old? But don't forget, most athletes in the Olympic space have put off and and at least delayed any formal higher education. And if they do go, I think it's, it's somewhat rare. Some of the other larger collegiate sports are able to do so like wrestling and swimming and, and track and field and such. But speed skating is not you know, a scholar driven sport. It's not like I can go to Stanford and they've got a speed skating rink there. So it, 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 you've really sacrificed a lot of time. And so I always joke and say that I was 27, 28 years old going on 18 mm. when I decided
1: to retire. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you did it, so we know it can be done, but then you did all this Olympic stuff and we know it can be done, but there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. Yet your book is about how people can learn from your experience and apply it to their own. You were willing to take on this radical uncertainty to really step away from everything you knew, because when you're saying, you know, you're listing all these other goals within the speed skating world, there it's in a sense, and I don't mean to belittle this, but it's sort of, well, I've been there and I've done that. So you're, you're just repeating what, you know, you can do. And you had, and I'm making this up. I'm I'm surmising that you had, and you mentioned the word curiosity. You had a depth of curiosity that in a sense outweighed the depth of uncertainty you were stepping into. I mean, you you were open to them to to well, okay. What's next? Did you consult with anybody? I mean, family. How did they respond? You know, my father is always one
2: philosophically who had told me that at some point, while I wouldn't be able to understand it, that this is actually um, not the most important part of my life. Uh, and obviously, I had a very difficult time. I'm talking about speed skating in general, and I had a very difficult time. Like you know digesting that because i just didn't understand how that would be the case um but you're right look i I think all of us yearn for something of change at some capacity whether it's change for the better um whether it's change because it's forced or we absolutely need it and i think i was in a place where i could have very easily made i believe physically the 2014 olympic games the 2018 olympic team and then i think i could actually be competing right now in beijing um, From an age perspective, from a physiology perspective, I think that I could have very, very high likelihood have made those teams. But I knew that that actually, and this is going to sound strange, it was the easy choice to do that. And, and I know you just mentioned that, but I know the path. I just, I understand what it's like. It's not easy, but at least it's familiar. Yeah. And there's an entire world out there that I did not understand. And I had peers and friends that I was hungry to learn from. And that was the motivating factor was finally I didn't have to have this schedule of training that was dictating my life and by choice, by the way, but instead it was, I, I just want to go learn and I have so much to learn. And so my dad has always kind of pushed me in that direction of saying like, okay, like now you have to go do the work and doing the work is full immersion. And mm. I, I started saying yes to everything because I had spent 15 years saying no to everything if it didn't have something to do with my performance. And now I was finally able to go have experiences.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could have stayed with what you've known. And then, you know, years later, you'd be a a blip on some social media site called, you know, where is he now? And they show, you know, paparazzi photographs of you stuffed on Cheetos or something, you know, and, and that would, that would be the end of your life. You would have been, well, he was something once, Uh, but you didn't take that route. And, and I think that, Takes a, a hell of a lot of courage, and it, and I'm I'm pleased that you said your your dad was supportive. In, in your book, Hard Pivot, you refer to well. Actually, let's just get people to understand the title. So, Hard Pivot is a specific move in speed skating. Tell us about that and how it. I mean, it's really what you're describing now at the age of 27 is you made this hard pivot, yeah. uh, into something else. But but tell us a little bit more about the idea uh, or the move itself. So. A pivot in speed skating is, you know, you're skating on this um, Olympic
2: size ice hockey rink. You're headed in one direction going 35, maybe 40 miles an hour. And then you lean over onto your uh, right inside edge and you have to perform this pivot on one leg, balancing on one hand around the corner to go in the complete opposite direction and perform successfully. It, you carry that momentum and you go hurtling down the straightaway towards the next corner. And then you repeat that again. In life, it's very similar, right? You're kind of going along, you try to set up this pivot, and many times you complete it successfully, and many times you do not. And you go crashing into the pads, and you have to figure out, okay, like how do I kickstart again, gain momentum, and, and restart the process all over? So a hard pivot in speed skating is pretty clear. Performed successfully, it's amazing. Uh, performed unsuccessfully, it's quite painful, both physically and mentally, and I had faced a hard pivot when I decided to retire and I had to divorce, so to speak, from the previous identity that was given to me and, and kind of proven to me many, many times over as I searched for you know, who Apollo 2.0 would be. And I had no idea. It was really, really challenging. And the easy thing was to go to a, you know, Olympic Games in 2012 as a broadcaster, see my peers and friends competing there, and then say, you know what, I'm going to go back to the sport. And that's why I think we see athletes come up out of retirement so often is because they miss the thrill, the importance, the external signaling that gives them that confirmation and affirmation that they have purpose and they have something to offer to this world, and that they are enough. And I, I, I did not want that, and I don't you know, fault any athlete who comes about a retirement. But that to me, on on my personal path, felt like I was I was giving in. And I didn't want to give in to that voice that says, just come back over here to this arena that feels comfortable and and familiar and you can normalize it regardless of your outcome. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes the harsh road is always the least crowded in the last mile. But that's what I sought. That's what I was hungry for. And I wanted to go against the grain. And I think a lot of us, um have at least a semblance of wanting that to know that there's going to be something else out there without
1: having a guarantee of outcome. Yes, without the guarantee of outcome. And what what's very exciting about the book, Hard Pivot, is that you provide people, because you're using it as a metaphor for making radical life changes. And you're not just saying, Okay, this is what you do, lean and good luck, right? So you actually provide people with what you call the five golden principles that are daily guides for people who want to just live, not continually making hard pivots, but live with this radical curiosity that you had and have, even in the face of equally radical uncertainty. I mean, you list them, those five G's, gratitude, giving, grit, gearing, and go, Can you walk us through those or maybe one or two of them that you think are the most important?
2: Yeah, well, they're kind of the accumulation of what I've seen as patterns that both my friends, um, people that I've observed, interviewed, talked to, and also myself have experienced. And I'm able to articulate it much better today than I was back then. I think gratitude is really being able to kind of set your present self here now to kind of to stop for a moment, take a breath, and be grateful for the most simplistic of things. Um, And we typically don't feel that gratitude until we're faced with loss or we just seek something to have some normalcy, right? When we're faced in like extreme conflict or pain, all we want is it to go back to quote normal. I just want to feel normal. I want no problems. I want no financial issues. I just want a normal relationship, right? I just want to be able to breathe properly. Like very, very simple things that we typically take for granted. and so. I think having a, a, a component of gratitude practice is a really important part of slowing time down for ourselves, while also really living and 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 kind of wanting less, so to speak. Which which is I think is an important exercise to to, to practice. The second would be you know giving, and and this is obviously we know the power of giving. It's kind of tied with gratitude as well, but also giving other people a chance. But giving ourselves the best possible chance of having success. So no more self-sabotage, no more kind of negative self-talk and being thoughtful and mindful around the ways in which others perhaps are less fortunate and how we often get in our own way and set obstacles that are unnecessary because perhaps we're afraid of showing up fully and it just not being good enough. The third is grit. And that's really just being able to brace for change and then embrace that change. Um, Yeah. Change is difficult. Behavioral change is even harder. As we've seen, cultural change is really, really challenging because you've got so much kind of historical DNA, so to speak, built into the human, but it's possible and it's always possible. And so having that grit to realize that the journey is never easy, it's rocky, and it's typically never in a straight line, and that's okay. And we can embrace that. The fourth is gearing up your expectations. So I explain this as you know, people who say like, enough is enough. I want to make a change. That's a great fire under your, in your belly to be able to turn that on. And you want to be able to harness that in a way that sets the expectation that will be sustainable, that is not easily reachable. That's actually just a little bit out of reach, but it's close enough to where you actually can see those goals. And the last one's just going and putting those things into action. You have to go test whether it's a business plan, whether it's a new sport, whether it's your you know decision to change the way that you communicate and interact with people in your workspace or with yourself. A lot of this is kind of paralysis by perfectionism by a lot of people. They they typically just want to be perfect and easy and fluid and dynamic, and it just never is. So you know it's never perfect, but we learn so much by doing. Uh, Just like this book, right? When I wrote this book, it was ninety. We cut ninety percent of the book out because we just felt that it was unnecessary noise that didn't need to be there. And so the book is a very fast read, uh, but it cuts right to the point. And it's filled with some stories and some anecdotes and also some insights that that I've been able to experience. And those five golden principles, I think, as we incorporate and integrate them, and maybe many people already do in, in essence in their own way, is the best way for us to kind of retain control over this wild, chaotic world that is highly uncertain, and is rapidly changing, as you mentioned in the beginning of, of our conversation. Right, We live today in an era where uh, th- you know this next generation speaks a language perhaps that we sometimes question or don't understand, and instead want to export our uh, belief system and fundamental system and fundamental beliefs because we believe they need to understand those in the same realm. And it's, it's always this conflict of old and young, so to speak. And so change is critical, change is necessary, change is inevitable. And the more that we can embrace those things, I think uh, the greater levels of fulfillment we can have.
0: Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop may 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org/thrive.
1: Let me ask you a question about something you just said a second ago about cutting the book. You know, you know, you it was a loose number. I mean, ninety percent. You you had to remove ninety percent of the book. How difficult was that for you? It was hard. It was very hard. But you know, it's necessary. I, look, the audience
2: today. There's always there's there's a couple of different groups, right? The average attention span has gone from forty seven seconds down to twenty one seconds in two thousand and eight, and I think it's somewhere around six and a half seconds today is the average attention span. 6.5 seconds you can grab someone's attention for. And so I felt that people wanted to have a more bulleted, summarized version of how I can connect and we all can connect together so that they don't feel alone versus all of these perhaps unnecessary stories that are about me by the way, that may or may not be relevant to them. And so I had to lean on and trust on the advice of friends, an amazing editor who said, Apollo, I think that maybe we should whittle this down into something more tactile and useful at the end of every chapter as a toolkit versus telling another 15-page story.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I've written 36 books. And the best part of writing a book is cutting crap out. (laughs) which I love, which is so important to me. And, oh, you have to know this. And I go, no, let's cut it. I think it's very liberating. Okay, but let's just put put that stuff aside and look at two other things, and then I'll let you go. You know, I I got the five golden principles. I said, okay, that's, I I understand all that. Then you had to devote an entire chapter to something that wasn't in the five principles, which is, the chapter is called Cultivating Belief and i'm very i found it very engaging and i want you to share a little bit about how you understand belief and how we might go about cultivating it
2: yeah oh I, i'm curious why you thought that this was um, more engaging than some of the other chapters
1: oh no i didn't say more engaging it was just it was very engaging What what caught me was when i see the word belief i always gag, you know, I'm coming at it from a religious perspective and that's not what you're doing here. And I go, Oh God, not belief, you know, cultivate, not knowing, cultivate curiosity, but you know, that's not, that's not what you wrote. So I was just, okay, so what does he mean? And I I found it really interesting. So I wanted you to share it.
2: Yeah. Belief is, is, is interesting. You know, I, have I've suffered in my own life from performing at a very high level out of a fear of failure, which I think a lot of people perhaps are maybe surprised of. I think it's really critical for people to understand that it's possible, that it's been done before, that the human experience has survived and adapted to incredible hardship in the past. You know, I look to people such as, you know, the great Viktor Frankl as being amazing teachers today in my life. And those components are, they're often overlooked, right? In our modern society. But the philosophical teachings that have been here for hundreds of years is really, really important. And so, you know, I I think all of us suffer from our internal trauma. I, I, I just feel like people underestimate the ability For themselves to enact change, specifically behavioral change. And people always ask me, like, I want to do X. You know, how do I get stronger? How do I, you know, not listen to that negative voice inside of my head? How do we focus more on the process versus the prize, so to speak? Right. These are some of the things that I talked about. But belief is really powerful, right? It's the thing I think that. It feels like it pulls you versus pushing you. It gives you a sense of, I think, alignment with your purpose. And I think for this alignment to really take hold of people's lives in a way, a part of the process is establishing a framework that will give you the best possible outcome or at least chance of reaching that success. So being able to zoom out for a second seeing your life as a series of chapters filled with incredible ups and downs on this roller coaster allows you to i think minimize the external social expectation of how you should be what you should perform what other people are expecting of you um, and instead kind of quiet that that noise for a second to say what is the most important thing in my life how do i currently align with that and how do I do things on the daily from a mechanistic, from a mechanical perspective to set myself up to make real behavioral change? And so if you're someone perhaps that struggles with willpower, well, then try to eliminate the the need to exercise the willpower as much as possible until you absolutely need to. Meaning if you're someone who always reaches for the bag of M&Ms during every lunch break, well, Remove them from your site. Just don't even create an option here. Stick to the plan that was in place. And over time, that behavioral change will actually occur. So what I have found throughout my own personal experiences is that we typically only see our own pain through our own lens because it's hard to empathize with others because we don't know those conversations inside their head. We can have some similarity uh, and we can somewhat understand, but we don't fully feel it. And therefore, I think it's important for us to all recognize that we're all struggling with something and whatever that something happens to be first and foremost, and I say this often, like self-acceptance is a big part of that conversation. So how are you able to accept yourself in all of the flaws and inconsistencies and self-doubts and disbelief and feeling less than um, in your present state and still have love for this life that has been gifted? That's hard to do. I struggled with that for a long time. But over time, I was able to actually say, like, you you are all these things. You're inconsistent, Apollo, and you have bad habits and all these things. And that's okay. That's a part of being human. But you don't have to stay there. You can choose to continue on the path of self-improvement. And also, you can choose to do hard things, not knowing full well if you're actually going to win an Olympic medal, or um, this job, or this business is going to flourish, you don't know the actual outcome. You can do all of the mechanical steps necessary, but at some point you have to surrender to that outcome. Um, And I think a part of every transitioning stage of our life, as we go through these, it's important to stop focusing so much on the result. Um, While it's important to remain cognizant of it, I do think there's more power and strength in focusing on the process. And that process keeps us in check. It gives us the discipline to go back and monitor. And it also provides um mechanical steps that are much easier to follow versus us blindly relying on that willpower to exercise day in and day out. And so, you know, the the chapter for me is is a combination of um You know, kind of setting your intention. Um, I think it's a a combination of identifying and articulating what and where you'd like to go. Um, That's really important, right? If you're kind of blindly just out there, you know, shooting, you have no idea where the target is or or how you're going to hit it. Um, And also, I think it's also just kind of understanding yourself and giving yourself um, time to kind of absorb. Um, where these habits or these routines have formulated in the past. And then if you seek real change, to me, the easiest way was always changing some of those morning and evening routines. Um, And and everyone starts their day and typically ends their day in their own routine. And they typically don't like to change those things. But if you do seek change, I think that's one of the first things that we can do from a physiological perspective, which then ignites and, and tells your body that this is a new environment, this is a new thing, and then it braces. And so I
1: think there's some emotional cues that are also associated with that. I want to underline one thing you said and then ask you about something else, and we'll bring this to a close. When you're talking about belief, you, you, you said it was more pull than push. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I thought that was really insightful and important for us to hear because when you're talking about, I'm going to change my morning and evening routines and i mean that's sort of like push i'm gonna you know my will is in there but there's something deeper um it sounds like and tell me if you agree with this but it sounds like what you're saying is there's something deeper that in a sense and i'm really exaggerating here that pulls you through the hard pivot and i'm not talking about supernatural i'm not talking about god and something spiritual like that or or, or abstract like that but there's there's something in your sense of, in a person's belief system uh, that pulls them in a specific direction that allows them to, even though everything is uncertain and there's no guarantees, allows them to do the best hard pivot they can do. Is that, is that an alignment with what you're talking about? It is. And
2: you'll know it when you feel that you're being pulled. Because it's it's this this it's this feeling and sensation that it almost feels like there's some responsibility there that goes above and beyond your initial response of saying I don't really know if I want to do that, and it's not easy to get to that state. You know, in in this chapter particularly, you know, I talk about some exercises around how one can really feel gratitude. You know, we talk about meditation, we talk about setting your intention. Um, these things are mechanical because you are thinking them, and you are putting them into action. So you're right, these are more pushes. But the pull comes from your belief. and that belief, and you know, I hesitate to say the word faith, but I, but I want to use it because you know the exercise that I ask myself is, you know like, what does this world um, want from Apollo and, and, and what does Apollo want from this world? Are those things in alignment? Are they important? And how can I cultivate that more on a daily basis, regardless of what my actual business or career path or um, you know position might be in that current state and time? What is at the core essence of what that is? And I'm just—I promise you, when you're able to find what that feels like, it's—it's it's almost like you have a sense of purpose, and that purpose is what is pulling you to persevere, to weather the storm, and to. Um, be that best version of yourself, knowing full well that it's not going to be
1: easy. You know, that would be a perfect place to stop, but I'm not going to let like, you stop mm-hmm. there because, you know, I, I read the book. I've got all kinds of notes that I, I made when, as I read it, and I thought I knew what we were going to be talking about, and basically we're, we're on, on a target, but I did not expect a reference to Viktor Frankl and logotherapy. And I've Victor Frankl's been dead since he died in 1997. I don't know how many people are are aware of his name, but in a lot of conversations I've been having in other venues, his he keeps coming back. He's like he's having this revival. So I'm just very curious as to how how I mean you brought him up. So, why was that the name that came up when you were looking for an example? What have you worked in log, with logotherapy? If you, how, how does his life and work speak to you? I, I haven't worked in
2: logotherapy. I'm familiar um, with the approach and and the techniques and such. But I, you know, when I was so, I'll, I'll take a step back. You know, during kind of the most toxic point in my career internally the way that I would communicate with myself, this kind of lack of belief, this like self this like self um, just just despising what you saw in the mirror when you watched your own races even if you won, you were almost disgusted with yourself because you just had been so addicted to this perfectionism me- mechanism or this there's always more you must be better you know you're, you're you're actually not good enough. this was this was a fluke or this was you know this was a gift to you, you didn't actually win it. And so, I just you know, like all the traumas and the mistakes that I made in my life, I was just curious about others who perhaps had gone through different areas. And I was, as as I was searching for my own purpose in life, and and I was, you know, luckily, you know, I've been I've been surrounded by amazing people to kind of prompt me to have more inquisitive conversations and write down how I feel and and read to be pretty frank. And so, the world. And humans have suffered unbelievable hardship and horrific, horrific circumstances. And Viktor Frankl is one of those individuals who had lived through one of the darkest times, I think, in our detailed human existence of the dark side of humans. And what can happen when that has been pursued and then focused in a way to exterminate humans in, in their entirety. And that starts at the soul level, you know? And I just remember reading about this, you know, I, I, no one had told me about Victor. I think I had heard someone mention it in passing at a dinner as the book that this person had been reading as of recent. And I was, at the time I was I was reading a lot of Carl Jung, kind of searching for my own meaning, so to speak. And so that kind of naturally led me towards what Victor's experiences were. And I was like, just taken aback. And I it, it gave me, <laughs> number one, it gave me, perspective on my own life and said like Apollo, like hey listen, like you know you think you have it so hard, right? <laughs> like you've got no idea And so it was great. it was great to be able to say that to myself. and it was also highly inspirational to say like I don't know if I would have been strong enough in that man's position, but there's so much to be learned from that and as we stay so so zoomed in on all these things that we think are so important in our lives and all this stuff that, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, they probably do not matter, nor will you remember them, and you probably will just laugh at them if you're 90 years old, looking back on your life, and you're kind of, and you'll just say, "I was so foolish." And so, you know, I I I read his book so often, um, Rami. I I probably read his book like 12 times a year, maybe maybe more. And I, I even like search for audio clips and others where he talks about, you know, suffering and the definition of suffering and these things. And so I've just found, especially in the past several years, one of my friends, he was my first sports psychologist at the age of 14 to 15 years old. His name is Dr. David Creswell. He went on to then study clinical psychology and meditation and now is a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and runs and operates the High Performance Institute at Carnegie Mellon, which kind of focuses around meditation and how it can help others around, you know, end of life or some other, um, you know, really challenging diseases, et cetera. And so I just remember, like, both David teaching me and kind of prompting me and showing me different ways you know, reading, you know, Victor's work. And it's just been a, just a, I don't know how to describe it. It's been a, an amazing way for me to exercise our own belief, right? We, we live in such a world where we're rapidly changing. And I remember David telling me, he said, Paul, you wouldn't believe the number of young suicides that's occurring. And I'm not talking about like in the teens, I'm talking about 12 and under suicides. The number has been quadrupling. That is a massive issue, and I think that from a society perspective, and I think a part of that is I, I just I want people, parents, and loved ones to be able to find their meaning, even when it is incredibly hard and challenging. And if someone who has lived through that can still speak in the same way as did Nelson Mandela, speak. Um, you know, I had a podcast a couple of days ago with a with a former president. And as we were talking, he was, I was asking him, we were talking about life and and the importance of, of living um, a, a good life as we would define it. And he was telling, when he was talking to Nelson Mandela, he says, you know, well, didn't you hate all those people when they held you in captivity as you were about to get in the car and drive out through those gates? Um, I would have had so much hate for them. And, you know, Nelson says, well, it, uh, of course, naturally in the, for a split second, I had a lot of hate. I, I they, they taken the greatest years of my life, or so I thought. And then he turned it around. And he says, "No, I cannot allow this to to dictate the way that I believe and the way that I see." I thought that was just so hard to be able to at least state those things. And then, so there's people in history that have gone through these these times and these periods, and they've shown the best of the human spirit and condition. When faced with incredible darkness, that to me is the essence of what this book is. You are not alone in the pain that you feel. The pain is real. Uh, No one wants to diminish that. There's people that have also gone through the same or similar or incredibly hard situations. And here are some incredibly powerful ways in which we can reframe the way that we perceive these challenges and turn them into opportunities. And I try to practice that. And I have not perfected
1: it in any way, but I, I seek that as sources of inspiration and guidance. Yeah, very powerful. Just so people know, you are referring to Victor Frankel. And I'm assuming the book, his most famous book is Man's Search for Meaning. So I absolutely encourage people after they pick up a copy of Hard Pivot and read that, they should definitely read <laughs> uh, Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning. So whose podcast were you on? I was on uh, President Bill Clinton's podcast. So you went from Bill Clinton to me. I mean, is that a step up or a step down? Don't don't answer that. Don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> this is really fascinating. Our guest today, Apollo Ono is the author of Hard Pivot. You can learn more about his work on his website, apolloono.com. Apollo, thank you so much for talking with us on The Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.